Good morning. My name is Heidi Polly. I'm going to be reading to you from a couple different areas, and we're going to start in Jeremiah. So if you would all turn with me there first. Jeremiah 23, verses 3 through 6. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, if you would also turn with me to Philippians, and it'll be Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Thank you, Heidi. That was awesome. Thank you, worship team. That last song was uh, such a beautiful uh, introduction into what we're going to be doing today. Hi, I'm uh, Pastor John, one of four pastors privileged to serve here at Windsor Community. I serve alongside Pastor Chris, who is leading worship up here. I particularly enjoy what Pat or uh, Pastor Chris is doing up here with uh, such a broad team, seven folks up here, some of them young, uh, just cultivating the worship of our Lord, leading in the worship of our Lord with uh, uh, youth as well as uh, older, more skilled folks. It's uh, beautiful to see. Thank you, Chris, for that. And serve alongside Pastor Dan and Pastor Pat. And uh, so I'll be bringing the message to you today, and we're going to continue in the word uh, concerning uh, the names of God, the name of name above all names. And uh, in previous passages or messages so far to date, we've heard on Elohim, El Shaddai, and then last week's was Jehovah or Yahweh. And thanks uh, once again to Chris because of his wonderful teaching last week. His message set the stage very well for our name of God today, that is Yahweh Sidkenu. Have you ever heard that one before? I'd venture to, who's ever heard of Yahweh Sidkenu? Pretty much a first, and maybe not. Somebody's, some folks have had it. Have you ever heard it taught? That one might be harder even yet. So Sidkenu, for those of you who uh, are taking notes and want to write that down, here's how it's spelled. It starts with a silent T, S-I-D-K-E-N-U. And it means the Lord is our righteousness. So it's once again pronounced Sidkenu. If you hear me say it wrong during the service, that's because I'm going back to when I first looked at this word, I just got it wrong. I butchered it. And you know how sometimes that sticks in your head and sometimes it'll come out. But uh, 
in any case, we'll go with that. Um, so our headline passage today, as Heidi uh, read, uh, is in Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. Uh, Jeremiah is principally a book of prophecy and judgment. In it, we see a lot of blessing and cursing, a lot of judgments. I should say righteous judgments for the behaviors and actions of God's people. Where Jeremiah gave, when, when Jeremiah gave this prophecy, the kingdom of Judah was messed up and was about to fall. There was idolatry, oppression, violence, issues of many sorts. In chapter 22, the stage is set, quoting, Why has the Lord destroyed such a great city? That's prophecy, right? And the answer will be, because they have forgotten the covenant of, our, of the Lord their God and have worshipped and served other gods. And later, but your, eyes, but your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain and on shedding innocent blood and on oppression and extortion. Sounds a lot like the world we live in today, doesn't it? You see, the northern kingdom was in captivity some hundred years before this, and it appears that they had not learned uh, their lesson from that judgment. And it is under these conditions that Jeremiah gives this prophecy of the Lord. As Judah had once again marginalized and defied the commands of God. And here in Jeremiah, a, ju- uh, judge- a judgment is being spoken against his people. But here, something new is, is being said that hadn't been said before. But God says he will provide another way. The way. The righteous branch. This branch refers to an offspring in the future. We should not be too judgmental about the behavior of God's people in this time. How easy it is for us even today. The nations, the cities, our communities, our institutions, even our own households to forget the great name of our God and to go on our own ways. To forget His majesty and power. To elevate our own will, our own pleasures, and our own righteousness. Even for us who call in the name of the Lord and are His children, How easy it is for us to become overcome by the cares and enticements of this world and give not so much care and attention to the love and worship of our Lord. Again in Jeremiah, this time just verses 5 and 6, says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In, the days of, in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. It's interesting to note that this combo name, Yahweh Sidkenu, occurs only twice in the Old Testament. Both times in Jeremiah, where the same prophecy is given two times. Once in Jeremiah 23, and once in Jeremiah 33. So we must start with these passages. These passages point forward to the cross of Christ and the gospel that we revel in today. Behold, the days are coming refers to a time in the future, not yet fully revealed at that point. The prophecy is for a righteous branch. This is Jesus Christ himself, the offspring, to be raised up as king. And this king will execute justice and righteousness. In these days, Judah will be saved and Israel 
all of God's people will dwell securely, and he shall be known by the name Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord is our righteousness. May it be so that we will proclaim and celebrate our Lord and Savior as the Lord our righteousness. And I believe the songs we sung today are faithful representation unto that. Praise God. This name lays the foundation for the gospel as we know it today, as it is fully revealed in the New Testament. The root word, the root word of Sidkenu is sedek or sedekah, which in Hebrew means straight. And this root word is used hundreds of times in scripture. The Lord is straight. He is perfect. In him there is no crookedness. He has not gone any wrong directions. In him there is no evil. In him there is no error in any way or at any time or at any level. He has never made a mistake. He has never lost anything, missed or omitted anything, or done anything wrong. He is perfect. He is the measuring stick. He is the standard of righteousness. He is Yahweh Sikenu. Today we will explore the righteous nature of Christ and how the name of the Lord, how the name, the Lord is our righteousness, applies to the followers of Christ. Some questions to get started that may help later with application. It is so easy, and I might say even common among us, to have an insufficient grasp of his righteousness and also operate with a weak or errant view of where we stand in regard to his righteousness. As you look around and go through your life, don't, don't you experience that people mostly think that they are right? Really, if no one asserted their rightness in a given situation, then there would be little prospect for arguments or disputes, right? Those who reject Christ do so because they think they are right, that they are the ultimate standard. Even, even among Christians, we express the righteousness of Christ. Do we do it properly? In our marriages, are there arguments? Do you guys argue in your marriages? Does it ever happen? In friendships, are there disagreements? Do we always see eye to eye? It may not even be that having differences of perspective or disagreements are necessarily bad or wrong in and of themselves, but the manner of how we conduct ourselves and our motives are where we fail to meet the righteous standard. That people are so given to judge other people, condemningly looking down on others, means we really do not have a right perspective of the magnitude of his righteousness as compared to our filthy rags. Seems that we hang on to the idea that we have righteousness in ourselves and that our righteousness exceeds that of others. Do you see the highly critical nature of our culture at work today? Personally, I am way overdone with the news and with social media. There is no real con- conversation or discourse happening. Everyone thinks that they are right. Few agree. And disagreeing factions have become highly polarized. And violence against the adversary seems to be acceptable in our day. How sad and how wrong. Is God even considered? Really? I hope the study of his name today, the Lord is our righteousness, will help us see more clearly in these times. Now another example from a very different perspective About 20 years ago, I was helping with a local, small local church here in Windsor. One morning as I was teaching in the adult Sunday school class before the worship service was getting started, we were studying the book of Job together. 
When we came to where God referred to Job as, as blameless, I took this opportunity to ask one of the ladies in the class, do you know you're blameless? I knew the gospel was not well represented in this church, and most of the attendees were relatively immature in their faith. The question shocked her. She could not see herself in that category in any way. Somewhat bashfully, she said, oh, no, that, 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 that's not me. While we can appreciate her humility, what became clear in that conversation was that she did not grasp her standing as a believer before God. That God, that God had credited his righteousness to her. She was very aware of her natural failings, but was not informed of her standing in Christ. How would you respond to the question if asked right now? Though this lady was young and immature believer, at some level, even mature Christians miss the depth, the value, the significance of having the righteousness of Christ credited to their account. The body of Christ is made up of broken, sinful people in need of a Savior. Last week, Pastor Chris unpacked this very well with a study of Yahweh. He laid it out very well about our sinful nature, the first Adam and the second Adam. We who come to Christ come with heavy loads, baggage, pains, shame, guilt, having made offenses against God and man. We come with embarrassments, weaknesses, failings, desperations, fears, anxieties. And in some cases, it's major offenses against us at the hands of others that define us. We know all too well our faults and weaknesses and the offenses of others, and these can continue to impact our lives even after we're saved. Does a passage on the Lord is our righteousness apply here? And if so, how? Hopefully we'll get some of those answers. So today we're going to cover four, four main areas. We're going to cover the nature of his righteousness. That's one. Two is the legal demand of righteousness. Three is his righteousness credited to us. And four, so what are we going to do with it? Where do we go from there? Okay. So getting started here, the nature of his righteousness. Now, the only way for him the Lord, to be our righteousness is for him to be righteous himself, right? And Psalm 129 just says it straight out. But the Lord is righteous. Psalm 89 says this, this is Sedekah. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Did you hear that? Let's read it again. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne the foundation of the gospel. And that's why we're so uh, studying it this morning. The righteousness of God, one of the most prominent attributes of, attributes of God in the scriptures, can be hard to define though, right? The righteousness of God is virtually though synonymous with his justice. Many times mentioned together in the same verse. Sometimes the same original word is actually translated equally as just, and other times that same word is translated as righteous. But it always means essentially the same thing. It has to do with God's motives and actions, and that they are always right and fair. They're perfect. 
Where we have trouble is that in the economy of man, righteousness is conformity to some external standard. As it applies to God, He is the standard. God is not subject to anything outside of Himself. So easily we, even unwittingly, put God in a place to perform to our standard of righteousness. We expect certain things of Him on our own human finite sensibilities. The truth is that there is not and can never be anything outside of the nature of God which can affect him in the least. When we declare his righteousness, we are declaring the way he is. When he acts, he is acting like himself. He is simply acting consistent with his character. How do we learn the qualities of his righteousness? We learn this by what he declares about himself and what he demonstrates to us in his word. Here are a few things that I've pulled out. Now, this is just eight. You probably could find 20 if you looked really hard. I had limited time in preparation, so this is what you get. Here it is. How do we know, how do we understand the qualities of his righteousness? Through his dealings with the nation of Israel, for one, and his story, his testimony, woven throughout the word from beginning to end. He instructs us in his word. 1 John 2 says, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, again declared to be righteous. He shows us his righteousness by fulfilling his great and precious promises. Nehemiah 9 says, You have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. He's righteous because he fulfills his promises. By judging his enemies and his people too. Psalm 96 says, For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness. And Psalm 7 says, God is a righteous judge. So how he judges. By the way he rules. Psalm 45 says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So he rules in righteousness by his heart and protection of the poor and the afflicted. Psalm 140 says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Amen. Another quality of his righteousness is his mercy and compassion. Psalm 116 says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. And last, and the pinnacle, is He is righteous because His demonstration of His righteousness is because He saves sinners. Psalm 92 8, I said that wrong. Psalm 98 2, the Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. This last one is so significant and is dominant in all of his revelation. God is righteous in all of his ways, in all of his dealings with mankind. The work most revealing of his righteous nature is that of saving sinners. And this reveals his righteousness in a very powerful way. Let me say that if you come to me and question his righteousness concerning something he has done, I can only point you to scripture and confirm to you that he defines righteousness. You and I 
must go to Scripture asking and not telling. It is not wrong to question, to try to understand the truths that are declared and revealed, but it is another matter to question the righteous standard himself or to put oneself in a position to judge his works by your human and limited standards. We can sum up then about the nature of the righteousness of Christ, that the Lord is in and of himself the righteous standard. His righteousness is declared in Scripture, revealed in all of his righteous dealings with Israel, and indeed all mankind throughout history. And the zenith of his righteousness is that he saves the lost, that he saves sinners. Number two, move on to the legal demand of righteousness. Righteousness was at the heart of the dispute between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. And this helps us to understand the righteousness of our Lord. In the gospel, he shows very clearly that their outward show of righteousness is not true righteousness. If the scribes and Pharisees could not produce enough righteousness on their own by their meticulous adherence to the law, then no one could. As they followed the letter of the law and were as good as any man could conjure to do, But the standard of righteousness the law held forth was even higher than that of the scribes and Pharisees. No one was righteous enough to get into heaven. What a shock to the self-righteous who thought that they had box office seats in the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees who thought themselves so righteous because of their rigorous attention to external matters proved to be just the opposite when judged by the Lord. In Matthew 5.20, it says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, fully devoted human ascension to obedience to the law failed and failed miserably. Matthew 23 says, Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! And this passage goes on, this much more on my page. I won't read it. But it continues with a scathing attack on the scribes and the Pharisees. Christ unraveled their world. He knocked them off their high horse, so to speak. He exposed the corruption of their motives. While their outward deeds seemed to have been okay, their hearts were vile and murderous, motivated by self-gain, greed, thirst for power, pride, and they were willing to inflict pain and suffering and even death on others. But Matthew 5 says this, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. The call... The mandate is to be perfect. You see, you have to be perfect to stand in the presence of the Lord. To be right with Him means that you must meet His standard of true righteousness, which is perfection. Perfectly holy, perfectly straight, no missteps, not even one. James 2.10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point, is guilty of it all. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the mandate is perfect righteousness. But the best of human 
efforts to attain righteousness was spurned by the Lord, and Scripture says that we have all sinned. Therefore, we have no possibility to attain righteousness on our own. Isaiah 64, 6, Sedekah says this, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We'll all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Our best, 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 best efforts amount to nothing but soiled garments compared to his righteousness, to his standard of righteousness. This is the truth. We miss the mark. You know it. We each one fall. We fail. We are weak. There is no earthly means by which we can attain to a good standing with the perfect righteousness of the Lord. There is no ladder to heaven. There are no good works that can overcome the deficit. Even our good works are stained and considered rubbish. The solution lies in the name that we are studying today, that the Lord is your righteousness. We have come to this point in beginning to explore this name of God, Yahweh, Sidkenu, understanding that this is the state of man, all mankind, every man, woman, and child who has ever lived, before and until putting faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous branch, the one given to be the Lord our righteousness. Without faith in Christ, this is where it ends. Without the righteousness of Christ, you have no hope. There is no way. Your own righteousness will gain you nothing with Him. Perfect righteousness is the demand to be saved from the clutches of eternal death. That is separation from the Lord God for all eternity. He judges with perfect justice, perfect righteousness. To be saved, you must have this righteousness that is not of yourself. You need to get his righteousness, his perfect straightness. You need to be spotless like he is spotless. There is no other way. Praise and thanks be to God that the story does not end here. If it did, then we would all be separated from him forever, doomed to eternal judgment. But thanks be to God that he has provided the way. Amen? All the way back there in Jeremiah 23 and 33, the righteous branch that he will raise up one day. And here we are in section 3, his righteousness credited to us. I'll read Jeremiah again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name that he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. By this prophecy alone, no other scripture involved, by his very nature of being just and righteous, is that he would provide the king, the righteous branch. That he would provide the way of salvation. By his righteousness, he declares that Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. He is to be the Lord, our righteousness. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's pretty complicated. 
break it down. This is a profound transaction that happens when someone puts faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The first part is this. He, Jesus, takes your sin upon himself. He takes it all. All of your past, present, and future blemishes and stains. He takes them onto himself. He removes your sin from you and takes it to himself. And he took your sin to the cross and bore the full, just, and righteous demand of the law for sin through death on the cross. The just penalty that had to be paid for you, for you who have put faith in Christ, was paid by Christ on the cross. What great mercy and love that he should bear my guilt, my shame, and be the payment for my sin. But even more, Philippians 3, 8, 9 Say this, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. But mark this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of of faith. You see, not only did he take your sin from you, by faith he gives you, yes, he gives it to you, his perfect righteousness. His perfect, full, complete, comprehensive righteousness. This righteousness comes from God on the basis of faith in him. This is how he becomes the Lord our righteousness, by faith in him. This is a gracious gift. And in Romans, I'm going to read from Romans 4, 23 through 25. Now this first part starts out concerning Abraham. The words, it was credited to him, were not for him alone, not for Abraham alone, but also for us. Mark this. To whom God will credit righteousness. To, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So for those who put their faith in the righteous branch, the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, He credits you with His righteousness. This is called imputed righteousness. Have you ever heard the word imputed before? Kind of a icky word maybe. Doesn't sound all that great, but it's good. Because what this means is he puts his righteousness to your account. You receive credit for his perfect righteousness. He became as you really are, and you have become what he really is. In him, you are without fault. You are pure. You are spotless, blameless, perfect. So now the father looks upon you as he does his son. You're not only allowed in his presence, but you're fully accepted by the Father and have his full favor. Now, not only are you accepted, you belong there. Now you belong in his presence, right along Christ himself. Ephesians 2, 4 says this, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You see, you are now seated with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Seated means that the work is done. Salvation is complete. He has become the Lord, our righteousness, for those who believe and have put their faith in Christ. Amen. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with this knowledge? Where do we go from here? How should this impact our lives? First, it is important to fully, as fully as you can muster, grasp that this work is done on your, for you on your behalf. In the Ephesians passage we just read, you are pictured as seated. You can rest now. In our headline passage in Jeremiah, the prophecy stated that Israel, the people of God, believers, those who live by faith, dwell securely. You are secure in Him. What He has done on your behalf cannot be changed by you. Can't be corrupted by you. Can't blow it. It is not of you. So you can't alter it or corrupt it or remove it. His righteousness now clothes you and you can rest in his finished work. No more fret or worry. You are accepted already. Next, it is important to walk in the truth. You are to keep his foundational truth in front of you at all times. Lest your walk with the Lord suffer with discouragement, doubt, fears, and anxieties. Forgetting the great work that has been accomplished on your behalf. In Ephesians, I'm going to skip to the latter part of this passage. Ephesians 4 says this, you are, you are to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness. You are to put on the righteousness of Christ to be renewed each day in the attitude of your minds so that you can live in true righteousness and holiness putting off all manner of falsehood, ill thoughts, words, and deeds. So part of this putting on is our worship. And we were led in worship beautifully already today, were we not? Worship should be a part of your daily life. But here it says, I'm going to go to a different passage actually, I have captured otherwise. Psalm 89 says this, Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are all those who have learned to acclaim you. Do you know what acclaim means? It means to, with great exuberance, it means excited praise. Means your, it's, it praise it just flows with great adoration from your hearts. You have learned to acclaim you. Have we learned to acclaim him? Who walk in light, we walk in light, in the light of your presence, Lord, they, we, rejoice in your name all day long and celebrate your righteousness. We ought to be a people that celebrates the righteousness of Christ and the righteousness that we have inherited. Okay. Now that you are ta- partakers of this divine nature, his righteousness, you're supposed to go and live that way. This is the way of faith. We live in him by faith from beginning to end. 
We're to strive together, to work exceedingly hard together, to keep your faith strong. We need each other in this work. And you're supposed to keep putting him on. Walk the life of faith. So in a sense, we'll repeat a little bit here. Stay seated. Stay firmly, firmly rooted. You are secure. Put on his righteousness and walk in his ways. Paul says this. Because the life of faith isn't just easy, is it? This all sounds great until you have to go to work or deal with the kids or fight the battles that we all fight in life. But what does Paul say? He says a lot. <laughs> Even in the passage on my page, but I'll, I'll just do this much of it in, the, in view of time. He says this, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken a hold of it. He doesn't firmly have hold of all this righteousness stuff just yet. But what does he do? But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. In this life, we will never truly measure up, right? You see here in this passage, Paul knows that and he is telling us what to do. Now, my dad had a friend some, some years ago. I was a young boy when I heard this, my dad tell me this story. I've remembered it to this day. But he had a friend who was middle-aged and had done nothing along the way to be healthy. He smoked. He worked long hours. Basically did nothing for his overall health. One day, the doctor told him they had very few years to live. He didn't change his ways. For some reason, he responded to the, to the warnings of his physician and started to make changes. Over time, he quit smoking. He started walking. After months, he started to jog. When he first started, he couldn't walk across the room without getting uh, winded. After a while, he got better and did some jogging, improved his diet, increased his distances. And a few years, after a few years of diligent efforts, striving just to survive, and then maybe even hopefully to thrive again, he was able to run a marathon. Wow. Now his health was not perfect. He still had aches and pains. He would still get the occasional sickness and he would ultimately die. But he took action for his new life. He pressed on to the doctor's call and his life was improved. You see, Paul is urging us as believers to strive forward, to press on. We will never achieve perfection in life. That's okay. That's just the way it is. But our lives of faith will be improved if we work hard to live a life that glorifies the Lord. Yes, we will get knocked down and we may trip and fall and fail. Paul says to get back up with your friends in Christ at your side. Paul encourages us to press on, move forward, forget what is behind. That stuff back there, it hurts. And it doesn't reflect who you are now in Christ. Our pasts no longer define us. We have a new identity. Paul urges us to press on with a view to heaven. Yes, heaven is the prize of the high calling. It is the Olympic gold medal for the victory. Paul urges us to run the race of life in him with a view to the prize. It is the reward his followers all receive made possible by the righteous branch. 
the Lord our righteousness. His righteousness assures a permanent, perfect standing with Him in the heavenly realms. 1 John 5 is encouragement for me, hopefully for you too. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. It's going to be done. It's done. You see how that's said? You will overcome the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. He will keep your faith for you, right? What a great encouragement today that the Lord, our righteousness, the righteous branch is himself the way. He is the way to be reconciled to the father. He is the way to fellowship with the Godhead. He is the way to everlasting life. He is the way to heaven. He has made the end of the journey for us a certainty, Because he has given us, credited us with his righteousness. Because the Lord is our righteousness, we have a sure hope. The walk of faith is challenging. We must press on and strive continually. But the end result is never in question. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven above, I thank you so much that you have given us your words of encouragement in the Bible. God, that you have, that you foretold thousands of years ago that you would send the righteous branch, the Lord our righteousness, that one day he would be an offspring, that he would come and deal wisely, justly, and with righteousness, and that he would be our righteousness. I thank you, God, that we who believe have put our faith in you. Have that hope secure. It will never be tainted, changed, modified at all by any means. Held in heaven by you. And I pray for those, God, that who have not yet put faith in you. God, that you would lead those even that might be here right now. If they do not have this faith unto your righteousness, unto salvation, unto heaven, God, that you would draw them to yourself. That you would lead them to yourself. That they would ask questions about what it is, that how do I attain this faith? How do I get there? And I pray, God, that your ministers throughout this congregation and throughout the world, truly, God, would minister your manifold grace by your spirit to those to profess faith in you. And so, God, I pray... Send us out this week as ones who embrace fully your righteousness, who who depend upon it, who do not depend any longer on themselves to be right before you. And I pray, God, that you'd show us each one and empower us each one in how to live out that righteousness consistent with the gospel of Christ. And so we pray all these things in your very precious name. Amen.